I'm Gan, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 13, The Right of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality, and the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 4, pages 860 to 868, to finish off chapter 14. And so I'll begin reading. This public claim was denied by John C. Manley, a California attorney who told the media that in December 2001, the San Diego Diocese paid $250,000 to a victim of just one pederast priest with a check drawn on a Union Bank of California account held by the San Diego Diocese. Diocesan officials scrambled to cover for their boss, who was caught in another barefaced lie. The record shows that Bishop Brown was personally involved in the December 2001 settlement. Morass charges backed up. In 1998, RCF attorney James Bendel traveled to Winona on a fact-finding mission on sexual abuse in the diocese, including the exploitation of seminarians at Immaculate Heart Seminary. Bendel established communication with Bishop Brown's lawyer, Vincent E. Whelan. In a letter dated December 22, 1998, from Whelan to Bendel, the former confirmed that there was another seminarian from Winona, Andrew Jacobs, who also alleged he was abused by bishops at Immaculate Heart Seminary. Whelan wrote Bendel that although neither he nor Bishop Brown were involved in the Jacobs case, they were informed that the Winona Diocese, represented by attorney George Restovich, had reached a negotiated settlement with Jacobs. Bendel also reported that in September 1998, John P. Webster, a former seminarian, from Immaculate Heart Seminary in Winona, was convicted of sexually molesting a teenage boy in June 1997 during a three-day retreat in the seminary aimed at recruiting potential candidates to the religious life. Webster received a sentence of 120 days in jail and 10 years probation. Charges that there was a bishop's ring of sexual molest predators operating in the Winona Diocese at Immaculate Heart Seminary were also backed up by another source, Monsignor Michael Higgins, a canon lawyer formerly of the Diocese of San Diego. In a letter dated April 22, 1999, to Pope John Paul II that addressed the decree of punitive laicization by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith instigated by Bishop Brown, against the troublesome priest, Monsignor Higgins stated, it is a matter of public record that the Bishop of San Diego, Robert Brown, has himself been charged with grave sexual behavior and has paid hundreds of thousands of dollars of diocesan funds to in attorney's fees and damages to escape the consequences of that misconduct and was given a promotion to the Diocese of San Diego, 
when the full extent of his disgusting and immoral behavior was already known. In his letter to the Pope, Higgins went on to explain his personal knowledge of Brahms homosexual activities at Winona. Monsignor Higgins told the Holy Father that in 1985, he became good friends with families of several seminarians studying at Immaculate Heart of Mary Seminary in Winona. He said that one seminarian told him that Bishop Brahm would come to the seminary and visit handsome seminarians in their rooms for the purpose of initiating homosexual activity. One seminarian revealed to Higgins that Brahm made sexual advances upon him even though he was not studying for Brahm's diocese, Duluth. After graduation from the college seminary, the young man finally informed his parents of what Brahm had done to him. Once the initial shock was over, the seminarian's parents told the paid the cost of a lawsuit filed by their son. His two attorneys contacted Archbishop Gabriel Montavo, the Apostolic Pronuncio in Washington, D.C., in May 1989. The nuncio, in turn, was required to relay the information to the Holy Father in Rome and the proper dicasteries dealing with the episcopate. Pope John Paul II appointed Brahm coadjutor bishop of San Diego with the right of succession on May 1, 1989. This means that the Holy See had 14 months to change its mind concerning Brahm's appointment to San Diego, but it did nothing. The fact that Brahm was preying on seminarians in the Winona Diocese appeared to be no impediment to his advancement. On July 10, 1990, Brahm succeeded Bishop Maher as the fourth bishop of San Diego. The seminarian in question received an out-of-court settlement in excess of $300,000, with the San Diego Diocese paying out of paying out $75,000 for damage Brahm had done at the Winona Seminary. The records were sealed as Brahm did not want the nature of the lawsuit to be made public. Higgins wrote the Holy Father. After Pope John Paul II confirmed Higgins' laicization on March 28, 1999, 26, 1999, which reduced him to the lay state, Dr. Higgins went on to found Justice for Priests and Deacons, a San Diego-based organization dedicated to protecting the canonical rights of Roman Catholic clergy and laity, especially with regard to due process. Since the publication of the Rite of Sodomy in 2006, an SNAP member from San Diego has contacted the author claiming that Higgins sexually abused, that Higgins sexually abused him. Also, a reliable eyewitness reported that one evening in the late 1990s, he saw Higgins having a physical altercation with a young boy around midnight outside a convenience store in the San Diego area. Unfortunately, no follow-up has been possible regarding the former charge. The Operations of the Clerical Overworld and Underworld one of the consistent themes of this book 
that is certainly confirmed by this chapter is that the homosexual underworld in the Catholic Church exists because it is protected by a vast clerical overworld that includes, but is not limited to, the Catholic hierarchy. The bureaucracies of the USCCB, the superiors of religious orders, and church officials in Rome, including the popes. There is no better case to demonstrate this phenomenon than the case of Father Paul Shanley of the Archdiocese of Boston, who is currently out on $300,000 bail awaiting trial for multiple counts of rape and indecent assault and battery on teenage boys. On April 8, 2002, the Archdiocese of Boston released 818 pages of documentation pertaining to the extraordinary criminal career of homosexual pederast Father Shanley. Tucked away in Shanley's massive personnel, personnel file was a letter Shanley wrote to Reverend Brian M. Flatley, Cardinal Bernard Law's assistant for sexual abuse cases. Shanley was trying to get a job at Leo House, a Catholic youth-hosted hostel in Manhattan, operated by the Archdiocese of New York. Shanley wrote, I have abided by my promise not to mention to anyone the fact that I too had been sexually abused as a teenager and later as a seminarian by a priest, a faculty member, a pastor, and ironically by the predecessor of one of two cardinals who now debate my fate. One could write a book about this single sentence alone. When and to whom did Shanley promise not to reveal this information? What were the circumstances of his abuse as a seminarian at St. John's Seminary? Which cardinal is Shanley accusing of molesting him? In a legal deposition taken in September and October of 2002, Reverend Flatley told attorney Roderick McLeish, Jr., who is representing Shanley's victims, that Shanley received unique treatment not afforded to other priests accused of sexual misconduct. McLeish suggested that Shanley was receiving preferential treatment because he was blackmailing church officials, but flatly did not take the bait. When the Shanley case goes to trial, he will learn the answer to these questions, but not before. Father Paul Shanley and Nambla. The first time the, this writer saw Shanley's name in print was in Father Rueda's book, The Homosexual Network, published in 1982. Rueda provided details of the first organizational meeting leading to the founding of the North American Man-Boy Love Association, NAMBLA, held at Boston's Community Church on December 2, 1978. On the speaker's list was Father Paul Shanley, Humberto Cardinal Madero's representative for sexual minorities to the United States Catholic Conference, USCC, Youth Ministry Board. What sexual minorities in general, and pedophiles and pederasts in particular, have to do with Catholic youth ministry is anyone's guess. 
but it is unlikely that Catholic Maderos, Cardinal Maderos, ever gave the matter a second thought. Bishops tend not to try and second-guess their own bureaucracy. Another reference highlighting Shanley's multifaceted sexual proclivities was Daniel Sang's The Age Taboo, an apologia for child and youth sex with adults. Sang, a gay popular left-wing journalist, reported that in Shanley's talk at the 1978 invitation-only conference, the priest told a story of a boy rejected by family and society, but helped by a boy lover. According to Shanley, the boy was shattered when his lover was arrested, convicted, and sent to prison. The cure did much more damage, Shanley said. It is interesting to note that Shanley never had any difficulty in bridging that mythical gulf that is supposed to exist between pederasty and adult homosexual relations. All pederasts and most homosexuals acknowledge the connection, while most American bishops appear to still be in denial. For example, in 1998, NAMBLA representative David Thorstad eagerly proclaimed to a standing room only audience of homosexual activists gathered in Mexico City that pederasty is the main form that male homosexuality has acquired throughout Western civilization. In an April 8, April 5, 2002 interview with the Beacon Journal, Neil Conway, a former priest and admitted pederast, said that he doesn't consider himself a pedophile. He said he differentiates between people who abuse young children and those who abuse teenagers. He compared this to a preference for different brands. Human sexuality has proven to be somewhat fluid, and a sex abuser's range of victims may vary greatly at different times and under different circumstances in his predatory career. Shanley, and, Shanley had the capacity to shift effortless, effortlessly between his boy victims, older teens and adult sex partners. Shanley practiced what he preached. Unfortunately, while NAMBLA membership has always been long on men and short on boys throughout his clerical life, Father Shanley has never lacked for vulnerable boys and young men to prey on. Sometime during his clerical life, most likely while he was a seminarian at St. John's Seminary, Shanley must have found the ecclesiastical goose that laid the golden egg because for more than 30 years, church officials in Boston and in Rome permitted him to act out his Nambla fantasies with immunity. After his ordination in 1960, the handsome, charismatic, and free-spirited Father Shanley was assigned to St. Patrick's Church in Stoneham. Here he teamed up with Father John J. White, another homosexual Boston priest. Together they forged a mutual protection society that would span more than four decades. As early as 1966, rumors of Shanley's predatory appetite for young boys began to make their way to Richard Cardinal Cushing and officials of the Boston Chancery. A priest from the La Salette Shrine reported 
that Mr. Charm was bringing young boys to a summer cabin in the Blue Hills Reservation in Milton for illicit and criminally prosecutable sex. Shanley was moved to another parish. In 1970, when the Portuguese prelate Umberto Cardinal Medeiros replaced Cardinal Cushing as the head of the Boston Archdiocese, Shanley received permission to launch his own Roxbury Street ministry based at St. Philip's Church for wayward youth, including runaways, drifters, and young gays. Scattered notations from the young priest's diaries found among the 1,600-plus pages of court-subpoenaed records from the Boston Archdiocese indicate that Shanley taught some of his charges how to shoot up correctly, which meant that Shanley, like many homosexuals, had a working knowledge of illegal drugs. The same source indicated that during this time period, the priest was treated for various venereal diseases that confirmed his sexually active status. In 1971, Shanley was photographed by the Boston Globe riding a tractor in Weston, Vermont, where Shanley had established a retreat house for youth workers on a 96-acre farm. Cardinal Maderos was advised that Shanley was a troubled priest, a euphemism for a ticking bomb, that Shanley had been charged with sex abuse of minors in 1974, and that the priest was becoming more outspoken in his defense of homosexuality and man-boy love. Shanley was required, was reputed to use any opportunity, including counseling sessions and the confessional, to solicit sex from young men. The Vatican was also informed of Shanley's record of sexual abuse and relations with boys and young men, but neither Maderos nor the Holy See took any action against the priest. Shanley continued to serve as the Archdiocese's sexual minorities advocate until the December 1978 NAMBLA fiasco. Cardinal Maderos pulled Shanley from his youth ministry and assigned him to St. Jones Church, where the priest's pattern of sexual molestation is alleged to have continued. Next, Shanley was transferred to St. John the Evangelist Church, where he served as assistant pastor. Following Cardinal Maderos' death on September 17, 1983, Shanley's prospects improved under Madero's successor, Bernard Cardinal Law. Law promoted Shanley to pastor of St. John the Evangelist Church. Shanley was also working as a chaplain at a mental institution. We know this because the Manitowoc Herald Times reporter claims that in 1988, a patient accused Shanley of graphically talking about sadomasochism and coming on to him. By 1989, Shanley had become too hot to handle in the Boston Archdiocese, and law had him shipped out of state to the Diocese of San Bernardino, California. The Cardinal informed diocesan officials that Shanley was a priest in good standing, officially Church records showed that Shanley was on sick leave for his allergies. 
Father White followed Shanley out to California, and the enterprising duo set up a type of bed-and-breakfast house in Palm Beach that catered to a gay clientele. As was the case with young boys, lack of money never seemed to be a problem for Shanley. In October of 1993, the Archdiocese of San Bernardino got wind of, to use Cardinal Law's exact words, Shanley's impressive record, and quickly yanked the priest from his post at St. Anne's Church, St. Anne's Parish. Shanley headed back east. Cardinal Law decided that Shanley needed a little R&R and sent him to a treatment facility, the Institute of Living in Hartford, Connecticut. The Archdiocese of Boston picked up the tab. During this same time period, Shanley had the uncanny good fortune to link up with his old friend and fellow pederast, Dr. Francis Frank Pilecki, who had resigned from Westfield State College in Barr, Massachusetts, after he was indicted but not convicted for homosexual misconduct with students. Pilecki was a former employee of the Archdiocese of New York. In 1987, he was hired to work at Leo House, a Catholic outreach outreach center and travel hostel, always teeming with young students, operated for the Archdiocese by Catholic Charities. Pilecki was reported to be a close friend of Father Bruce Ritter of Covenant House, a number, another member of the East Coast Pederast Ring. Pilecki convinced Shanley to take a job as a minister at Leo House. The aging street priest took up a residency at Leo House with an openly gay roommate. Unfortunately for Shanley, one of Shanley's former victims had traced him to Leo House and began a series of calls to the nuns in charge of the lodging. Finally, in 1995, one of the nuns contacted Cardinal O'Connor and asked if the accusations against Shanley were true. She never got a formal reply from O'Connor, but Cardinal Law delegated Father Flatley, his assistant on sexual abuse cases, to allay her fears. Now the Archdiocese of Boston finally leapt into action. No, not against Shanley. Rather, it attempted to contact the snitch and see if they could reach a financial settlement. In the meantime, the Archdiocese of Boston continued to pay Shanley's mounting medical bills. In 1996, on the occasion of Shanley's 68th birthday, Cardinal Law awarded him his senior priest status, which meant an increase in pay and benefits. In 1997, Law, upon learning that the position of executive director for Leo House was vacant, informed O'Connor that he would not stand in the way of Father Shanley, Father Shanley taking the job. But the New York Cardinal is reported to have turned down Law's proposition. Eventually, Shanley. Eventually, Shanley found his way back to California, where he remained until May 2, 2002, when his luck ran out. California law enforcement officials, officers in San Diego, arrested him. He was extradited to Massachusetts, where he was arraigned at the Newton District Court in Cambridge, 
and is currently awaiting trial on bail. It has been reported that Shanley will plead innocent to charges of the repeated rape of a young boy and that his defense lawyers may argue that Shanley was a homosexual with no history of sexual activity with prepubescent children. Cardinal Law was forced to resign on December 13, 2002, and has been replaced by the Vatican's troubleshooter, Sean Patrick O'Malley. The Archdiocese of Boston is still trying to reach out an out-of-court settlement with the attorneys of dozens of Shanley's victims so that the Shanley case never has to go to trial. The anatomy of the overworld that protects Shanley. As the Shanley case clearly demonstrates, not only did the Archdiocese of Boston have a flourishing clerical pederast homosexual underworld, it also had a clerical and lay overworld consisting of our cardinals, bishops, priests, lay bureaucrats, papal nuncios, diocesan attorneys, and an infinite number of other individuals who protect the underworld either by their silence or by their overt cooperation. Shanley went through three cardinals. He is currently on his fourth. Richard Cardinal Cushing, 1944 to 1970. Umberto Cardinal Maderos, 1970 to 1983. Barnard Cardinal Law, 1983 to 2002. All of the above cardinals protected Shanley. Why? When all is said and done, the answer boils down to blackmail. Shanley knew too much about too many, and like many clerical homosexuals, was clever enough to have kept good records as a form of insurance against the day he would run into trouble with either the church or secular law enforcement agencies. Shanley was accu- has accused an unnamed cardinal of abusing him when he was a seminarian at Boston's St. John Seminary. Cardinals Cushing and Medeiros played an important role in covering for Shanley, and as the record clearly shows, law has not been out of Shanley's grip since he took over the Boston Archdiocese. Father Shanley also went through a host of auxiliary bishops. Those still living include Bishop Robert J. Banks, now Bishop of Green Bay, Wisconsin, Bishop John B. McCormick, now Bishop of Manchester, New Hampshire, Bishop Thomas B. Daly, former Bishop of Palm Beach, now Bishop of Brooklyn, New York, Bishop Alfred C. Hughes, now Archbishop of New Orleans, Bishop William F. Murphy, Bishop of Rockville Center, Long Island, New York, Bishop Banks, ordained by Cardinal Law in 1985, served as Law's Vicar for administration. He helped stash Shanley safely away in the Diocese of San Bernardino. According to San Bernardino church officials, Banks wrote them a letter in 1990 in which he assured our diocese that Father Shanley had no problems that would be of concern to the diocese. Bishop McCormick, the former chairman and still member of the USCCB's ad hoc committee on sexual abuse, was reported to have been working with Shanley to develop a safe house system for clerical pederasts on the lam. 
as Law's Secretary of Ministerial Personnel for the Boston Archdiocese from 1984 to 1994, McCormick was charged with handling numerous sexual abuse complaints against archdiocesan priests. McCormick has been named in a recent clergy abuse lawsuit involving the late Joseph E. Birmingham of Boston Boston defendants charged that McCormick, a seminary classmate, classmate of Birmingham, who served in a parish with him in Salem, saw the priest take boys to his room in the 1960s and did nothing to stop it. Bishop Daly, ordained by Cardinal Maderos in 1975, is reported to have played an important role in the cover-up involving convicted, convicted pederast Father John J. Geogan of Boston. As Chancellor and Vicar General under Medeiros, he was an insider in the Shanley case. In an excellent New York Times article titled, Cardinal's Ex-Aids Touched by Scandal, reporters Pam Bullock, Fox Butterfield, and Sarah Reimer stated that in 1982, Daly permitted Geoghan to go on a planned two-month sabbatical to Italy after he daily had promised the family of seven abused sons that he would act responsibly. In 1984, Daly became the first bishop of Palm Beach. After Daly was awarded the Diocese of Brooklyn, his successors, Bishop Joseph K. Simmons and Bishop Anthony J. O'Connell, were both forced to resign when their pederastic exploit became public knowledge. The roles played in the Shanley case by Archbishop Hughes, who was ordained by Cardinal Maderos in 1981, and Bishop Murphy, a lawman, are yet to be determined in upcoming court depositions. To his credit, the only Boston auxiliary to have voiced his objection to Cardinal Law concerning Jorgen's homosexual involvement with young boys was Bishop John M. Darcy, the current bishop of Fort Wayne, South Bend, Indiana. Finally, Shanley was brought, finally Shanley went through at least a half dozen different Catholic parishes and dioceses and hundreds if not thousands of church bureaucrats, pastors, news reporters, law officers, social service personnel, and other lay people in the 40-plus years of his sexual career. And is the underworld that protected Father Paul Shanley any less culpable than he and the homosexual underworld to which he belonged? Is the overworld that protected Father Paul Shanley any less culpable than he and the homosexual underworld to which he belonged? True reform begins with Rome. The scandal, loss of faith, and moral devastation that the actions of Amchurch's predatory homosexual episcopate has wrought, brought, has wrought on the Catholic Church in America is self-evident for anyone who has eyes to see and ears to hear. The following chapter, highlighting the special role played by Joseph Cardinal Bernardin in the homosexual underworld will bring into even clearer focus the need of the Holy See 
to clean out the clerical homosexual underworld in the church and the vast ecclesiastical overworld that protects it. The searing question Rome must answer is, are bishops above the law ecclesiastical and civil? So far the answer has been yes. This chapter on homosexual pederast bishops in the American hierarchy began with a quote taken from St. Damien's Book of Gomorrah. This writer believes that it is equally fitting to end this segment on morally corrupt bishops and cardinals with a final admonition from St. Damien that is as, is as true today as it was in 11th century Italy. True church reform begins with the Vicar of Christ. And now, my commentary. My reading today, Thursday, May 13th, 2021, The Ascension of the Lord has been from the right of sodomy, homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, volume 4, pages 860 to 868. My view stated in episode 12 that the pederast priests should all be sent to prison and even killed by the inmates there as retribution for their violation of, of and sin against young boys might seem a bit harsh and cruel to some people. But as I also stated in episode 12, Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea, Matthew 18.6. And so even Jesus believed in this harshness, in quotes, and cruelty, in quotes, actually justice toward violators of children. Jesus wasn't being especially merciful toward the money changers in the temple when he drove them out with a scourge, or toward the Pharisees when he called them whited sepulchres and a brood of vipers, but he was doing toward them what was necessary to get through to them and what was just toward them. If violating children's bodies is as serious as violating the sanctity of the temple through money changing in it or violating the propriety of your religious position by being a whited sepulcher in it, if not far more so, then it is deserving of the same or more severity as was shown toward people toward temple violators or priesthood violators. We don't need to put ourselves in pederasts or Nazis or Klansmen or serial killers or white beaters or rapists or any other truly merciful people's shoes and consider things from their point of view and say there but for the grace of God go we because we don't go in for or do any of those things and would at least never do any of those things and have enough sins on our plate without piling on them all the other sins in the world and identifying and sympathizing with all of them. True mercilessness is, nothing, is violating and doing whatever you want to innocent people, as the Nazis did to the Jews, Klansmen lynching and blowing up black people did to them, rapists raping women did to them, and pederasts molesting children did to them, but it wasn't and isn't mercilessness to execute Nazi war criminals for their crimes against humanity, or imprison Klansmen, or execute them 
for their murders of black people or violations of their civil rights, or imprison pederasts for their violations of children and subject them to the possibility of being killed by inmates for that crime. It was and is justice. It was God's justice to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and God's justice to flood the world, as harsh as both of those things may seem to some people. Severity toward actually guilty people, Nazis, molesters, Nazis, molesters and their ilk, not just guilty in someone's distorted view, is actual justice, not mercilessness. Truly, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, and cursed are the merciless, for they shall obtain mercilessness. And now my reading from the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. Article 8, Sin. 1. Mercy and Sin, Sections 1846, 1847, and 1848. 1846, the gospel is the revelation in Jesus Christ of God's mercy to sinners. The angel announced to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The same is true of the Eucharist, the sacrament of redemption. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 1847, God created us without us but he will not save us without us. To receive his mercy, we must admit our faults. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1848, as St. Paul affirms, where sin is increased, grace abounded all the more. But to do its work, grace must uncover sin so as to convert our hearts and bestow on us righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Like a physician who probes the wound before treating it, God, by his word and by his spirit, casts a living light on sin. Conversion requires convincing of sin. It includes the interior judgment of conscience and this being a proof of the action of the spirit of truth in man's inmost being becomes at the same time the start of a new grant of grace and love. Receive the Holy Spirit. Thus, in this convincing concerning sin, we discover a double gift, the gift of the truth of conscience and the gift of the certainty of redemption. The spirit of truth is the consoler. And this is all that I have to read from or comment on today. So I'll end my podcast here. And may God bless this podcast. And may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.